Good morning. You may be seated. We have been for the last four weeks, this is our fifth now, considering calling, vocation and our callings in our life. The idea of vocation and callings hit me hardest when the question was posed, is a Christian who is suffering from Alzheimer's disease still called by God? I got to tell you, rocked my world. Is a Christian who is suffering from Alzheimer's disease and all of the horror that comes with it still called by God? Well, of course, my head said that the answer is yes. Of course, it's yes. But it doesn't really make any sense to me. And to be honest, it feels a little bit mean of God to allow someone to suffer and still expect them to live into their callings. I mean, let's talk this morning. If we're going to talk, let's talk. It's hard to find the grace in that, especially when our human sensibilities are at play. Kathleen Cahalan, who is uh, the author of the book, The Stories We Live, that our triads are going through together, says this, you can find yourself in situations that require patience and waiting or duty and obligation. Such situations can entail suffering and pain rather than joy and peace, at least not initially. It may not be what you want or where your gifts lie, but it is simply the fact of where you are. Suffering comes in many shapes and sizes. Our physical or mental health alters our abilities to live out of our talents and our passions. We're forced to work, some of us, in jobs that do not use our spiritual gifts or talents and feel menial and maybe even demeaning. Someone we thought that was safe betrays us, rejects us, or divorces us, throwing our lives into an unexpected turmoil. The death of a loved one casts us into loneliness and loss. All of these are situations of suffering and cause, uh, alter our ability to live fully into our vocations and callings if our human sensibilities are all we have to rely on. So there's an important statement. If our human sensibilities are all that we have to rely on. And so when we find ourselves in a situation of suffering, God gives us something. He gives us an invitation. He extends to us an invitation. This is where the grace comes from. This is what makes him not mean. He extends us an invitation to engage our grief, to admit our doubt, and to embrace our callings by engaging with him in lament. Lament. It's a gift. Lament is God's gift to us for the profound disorientation and disappointment and disillusionment that comes in times of suffering. I'm going to say it again. Lament is the, is the gift. It's the salve. It's the medicine to combat the profound 
disorientation and disappointment and disillusionment that comes in times of suffering. Lament gives voice to the loss of promise and goodness. Lament gives voice to loss around us. The promise and goodness that is all around us that is lost, lament gives us voice. And lament, lament gives us a way to engage our callings and purpose, even in suffering. In the reading from Ruth, we find that Naomi's situation has turned towards suffering. As Alan mentioned, she and her family are forced to move from their homes in Bethlehem and go to Moab to escape a famine. And as they are there, this is the order of how things happen. Naomi's husband dies, we're told. Naomi's husband dies. In Moab, her two sons, Naomi's two sons, marry Moabites, Ruth and Oprah. Now, I want to say something to you. Uh, you know, this is not an in-law joke. I'm not making jokes today, but in a real sense, the fact that Ruth's sons married Moabites represented suffering for her because it was a loss of a promise that she was going to return home and a breaking, irreparable breaking of the way things always were. All hope of that was gone. They were Moabites now. And something is a little bit different there. And then Naomi's sons die. Naomi is left with no means of sustenance, no family, and really no purpose. She is forced into a last-ditch effort to actually survive. And so she decides to return to Bethlehem as a beggar. And so Naomi laments. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity down on my head. Should be the actual translation. And by the way, my tone, if you were nervous that it was too strong, not even close. Lament is a gift. It allows us to engage with our grief, to admit our doubt, and to engage our callings in suffering. It's a gift. So first, engaging our grief. If we want to engage our grief, if we want to find our callings in suffering, I want to say something to you. We must shed stoicism. It is our enemy in suffering, not our friend. It's not. It's our enemy. Stoicism is the endurance of hardship without any display of feelings and no admittance that we are in need. The dictionary definition of stoicism is positive. The example is actually this. She accepted her suffering with remarkable stoicism. <laughs> That's the theological response. 
And why am I saying this so strongly? Well, we live in New England. We're fond of stoicism. We take pride in relying on our own toughness and making our own way to freedom and healing. We're fond of black and white answers and quick, quippy colloquialisms. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. God helps those who help themselves. We are tempted to look to others who are suffering and say something that I hope you never say. God has a purpose for that. He does. But a better response would be, can I cry with you? Can I cry with you? Would you like to wail on my shoulder? A better response than stoicism for times of suffering is for us to cry out like Naomi cried out. You brought me here, God, and you left me to die. And that is what embracing our grief is. It is simply crying out to God that the situation we find ourselves in was not how it was supposed to go. That's a tough one for Christians. Well, this was the will of God. Really? It doesn't feel like the will of God. God, this is not the promise we had with each other. Where's the grace? Where's the mercy? This is not how this was supposed to go. I am in grief. I lament. Naomi's words, I went away full, and you, God, brought me back empty. Listen, Naomi is lamenting because she did what God told her to do and saved her family, and it went horribly wrong. You do what God says, isn't this all supposed to be good? It went horribly wrong. She left with full hope and full confidence that she was doing the right thing, yet she came back penniless and without a husband and with no clear picture or purpose or call on her life. She came back a beggar. I'm just trying to make it. She's not done. She admits her doubt in God. You think grief is hard for Christians? This one is brutal. I say this, and I see some of your eyes like, you can't do that. You cannot admit a doubt in God. Brian, you can't tell us to do that. I'm going to tell you to do that right now. Because it is the, it is the purest form of lament. Here's, Norm, here's Naomi's lament. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with, bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why even call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity on my head. Lament invites us to admit our doubt that God is who he says he is. I'm telling you, this is hard for us. So I'm going to go to um, uh, who I like to call the Protestant Pope, Tim Keller, to tell us about this. <laughs> Let me quote Tim Keller. Maybe you'll believe him. A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. A faith without some doubt is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blindly go through life too busy or too indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do 
will find themselves defenseless against their experience of tragedy. Defenseless against their experience of tragedy and the probing questions of a smart skeptic. I will guarantee you, as you have conversations with someone who is far from God, when you begin to have a gospel conversation, I will guarantee it, guarantee it, that at some point in time, the question will come, why, do good, why does God allow suffering to good people? Guarantee it. Guarantee it. That's not the main point today, but I wanted to do that little sidelight to tell you that if you have not wrestled with your own question of why God allows good things to happen to people, you will never be able to offer the hope of the gospel to somebody else. It'll be like a body without any antibodies in it. Back to my point. Continuing with Keller. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after a long reflection. He just described lament. It is a long reflection on our doubts. Our psalm today began with the words that are familiar to many of us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it goes on. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night I find no rest. You may not know them from Psalm 22. You know them from Jesus Christ on the cross, who in his moment of greatest and profound suffering, he acknowledged his doubt. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus uses these same words in the midst of his doubt. To ask God, why? Maybe that's all we can muster. Maybe that's the only word that we can muster. I love the songs that Laura picked today. The, the first two we sang had questions. They all had questions, didn't they? Questions is this great thing of lament. In fact, the best thing we can do when we're suffering is to not have a lot of answers, but to have a lot of questions. How long, O oh Lord? Where are you, O oh Lord? Or if those are too hard, why? Why? Why have you forsaken me? What's happening here? When we consider our suffering together, we walk a tightrope. We walk a tightrope. Between acknowledging our suffering, our grief, and expressing our doubt, like that's one side of it. But there's another side we try to walk between in health. And the other unhealthy side, like if we just stayed here, by the way, this is healthy, but if we only stay here, there's a problem, right? Just expressing, like just embracing grief and expressing doubt only is really problematic, yes? Mm -hmm. I'm getting to something, yep, hang on. <laughs> we have to be there, but we don't want to stay there. But we don't want to be in another place either. We don't want our suffering to become our identity. Come on, right? And that one, I'm telling you, this one's so easy to slide into. This is true of our spirits, our wounds, right? Even our souls. I'm abandoned and rejected. No, you're not. That's not your identity. 
I have Alzheimer's. That's not your identity. Death shrouds me. That's not your identity. Say it, but don't live there. So there's a tightrope here. And that brings us to our third point. Lament helps us embrace our true callings in suffering. That's the healthy middle. God intends for us to engage with our grief and admit our doubt so that we can embrace our callings in suffering. Lament invites us to re-examine our notions about God, about his love, and about his faithfulness. There's an invitation in Lament to re-examine our notions about God. I can just tell you something about God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Please do not confuse that with black and white. He's mysterious, and his ways are higher than ours, and he's big, and he invites us to re-examine our notions about him when we suffer. The questions are good. Why have you forsaken me? How long, O oh Lord? Where are you? What's the point of this? There's an old worship song that I often sing in the mornings from, from my youth, the days of my youth. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Sing it. His mercy never comes to an end. He is new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. Great is thy faithfulness. It's not in the Gospels. It's not a psalm. It is found in the book of Lamentations in the middle of chapter 3. And the beginning of that chapter starts with, I am the man who has been afflicted under the rod of wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Lament. Lament is the way that we heap our suffering and our sorrow on to God. <laughs> this is the invitation that keeps us in the healthy place. He can take it. I got to tell you something. I can't take it all the time. I got to tell you something else in case you're confused. You can't take it all the time. <laughs> but God can take it all the time. And he invites us to lament so that we heap it on him, on his broad shoulders. He says, come on. And then, as we express our disillusionment, our despair, our disorientation, this is not the way it's supposed to be, God. Where are you? I don't think you love me. He begins to untangle the mess. I want to think of it this way. If you jam a bunch of wires into a glass jar, and I mean you jam them down there and they become all tangled and entwined and they become a ball. And then you break the glass jar. What happens? A few might go bing, bing, bing. But mostly you're going to have a ball of wires. That's lament. We bring them to God. And he begins to go, I'm going to pull that one. 
I'm going to pull this one, and I'm going to untangle it until in the middle there's something I have for you. There's something I have for you. There's something here. This is from Kahalen again. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but I'd like you to hear it because she says it better than I can. Lament names the profound disorientation that comes from loss, disaster, and suffering, and also speaks of reorientation. A new kind of faith that is not simple or simplistic, not, design, re, uh, not resigned or passive, but something new. In suffering, you can move from seeking explanations about God to finding God himself. Discovering that faith is not belief in a set of ideas of a, about who God is and how he operates, right? That's not faith. But trust that God remains with you and you remain with God no matter what your circumstances are. For many, the insight that God never abandons them despite their misery pushes their faith to a new place. And can I tell you something, those of you who go through suffering, when we watch, the rest of us watch your faith go to a place that we don't understand, that's your call, at least one of them. I have sat with people in profound suffering. Sometimes they practice stoicism, like, hey, everything's okay. And to them, I just say, no, it's not, come on. By the way, don't say it to me. I pushed through that pretty quick, okay? But I've also sat with people who said, this stinks. This is not the way it was supposed to be. I do not know where God is. Yet, I'm going to choose to stay with him. I'm going to heap everything that I'm feeling on him. Next time you read the book of Ruth, I know it's entitled Ruth. It's not a story about Ruth. She actually isn't the main character. Okay, God's the main character. Okay, fine. <laughs> the main character is Naomi. I don't know why God entitled it Ruth. It should be titled Naomi. It's a book about her. Something never happens in this book. Naomi never says to God, I got it. She doesn't say it. Her friends say it, but she doesn't say it. I don't know. We don't, we, we don't know much about Naomi, but we do know something, that in her profound suffering, as she embraced grief and as she admitted her doubt, she found a new call on her life. And this is fun. She became matchmaker. <laughs> she was the love doctor, you know, if you will. Because Ruth doesn't even know she's in love with Boaz. Until Naomi says, hey, you know what you should do? I mean, what if you kind of went with the other women and you went, you know? Naomi's all of a sudden becoming matchmaker. Now, that may seem silly. I wanted you to laugh because, you know, you should laugh a little when we're talking about suffering. But here's how the book ends, literally. And I am not going to make it through it, but here it is. Maybe you've never heard anyone cry to genealogy before, but here it comes. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Abinadab, and Abinadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And we pick it up literally in those words in Matthew, and here we go, the whole genealogy. 
And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jehoiahin and Jehoiahin's brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon, more suffering, and we're not done. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jehoiakim, the father of Shelatiel, and Shelatiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abaud, and Abaud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zodak, and Zodak, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, who was married to Mary, of whom Jesus was born, the Christ. I don't know if Naomi ever realized it. I doubt she did. She died a long time before this happened. But because she entered into lament, because she expressed her grief and her doubt and engaged with a new calling, matchmaker, between Boaz and Ruth. It is why we stand in front of a cross today. It is how Jesus came. That is at least in large part Naomi's doing. Because she found her call and told Ruth how to win Boaz's heart and to be available to his love and his faithfulness and his mercy, even when Naomi wasn't buying it. The line of the Messiah was restored. The line of Jesus was restored. Through all of those generations, Matthew says 14 generations, right, in all. Right in the middle of that. Right in the middle of that is Naomi's lament and her embrace of a new call.